The title of this message is a, a parable of forgiveness. This is I put part one down, part one, here on my notes because there will be a part two. Uh, I can't finish this this morning and there's no way you can split this story up in, a month later because if you've been with us, you realize that this is not what I'm normally preaching. I'm normally going through the book of Romans, but on every first Sunday of the month, uh, I do a little, something a little different, or have been, and I started a little study on the subject of forgiveness back on June the 1st. So I bring a new message today on that subject. If you miss any of the first two, then I would recommend that you go back, go on Sermon Audio and uh, our church webpage and direct you to Sermon Audio, and you can listen to both of those messages. In which I said, in order to know how and when we should forgive those who have sinned against us, that was in message one, we must understand how and when God forgives sin. God's forgiveness of sinners is not unconditional. It is conditional. So the same must be true of the forgiveness that we grant to others. This is all by way of review. And my theme verse is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I made, and I'm going to go through these rather quickly, I made five major points in the message number one. And first I established something that we would all agree on, and that is the need for God's forgiveness. And that's seen in the fact that all men are are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. I don't think we have any arguments there, Right? Sinners by nature is clear from Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. David said, in, in sin did my mother conceive me. We're also sinners by choice. According to Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Not one. Not one. All have sinned, as Romans says, and uh, come short of the glory of God. So that's the human condition, and it's a dreadful human condition. Sinners, all sinners without Christ, are in a perilous condition because they they face eternal separation from God. Romans 6.23, the first part of the verse, says the wages of sin is what? Death in the Bible is separation. And that separation will be eternal separation from God. When you think of the character of God, what image comes to your mind of God? Hopefully, it's based on what the Scripture says, right? All of the attributes of God. And the Scripture says that He is good, that He is merciful, and that He is kind. The Scripture makes it abundantly clear that He is willing to forgive our sins. The prophet Micah said, chapter 7, verse 8, who is, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by transgressions of the remnant of the heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. Praise God for that. So the good news is that the God who is forgiving by nature sent his son into the world, the scripture says, 
He sent his only begotten son into the world. It didn't mean that Jesus was born. The only begotten term there means the only son of, of his kind. The only son of, of, like, there's no other son like the son of God. But he sent him into the world to do what? To suffer and to die so that sinners could be forgiven. So Romans, again, 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But what does the latter part of the verse say? You can say it with me. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus alone was free of sin by nature and by choice, Jesus alone was qualified to bear our sins on the cross and to suffer in our place. That's known as the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The just dying for the unjust. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God who is forgiving sent his son into the world to suffer and die so that any sinner could be forgiven. And that includes you, if you don't know Christ. Look in Colossians chapter 2 just for a moment. I won't ask you to turn to too many places because I know I'm a little bit under a, a, a time constraint here this morning. But in Colossians chapter 2, and it says in verse 13, And you being dead, and the, the, the word there is necros. We get the idea of the word or necrology, you know, which is a report, kind of like an obituary, a list of people who died. And you being dead, necros. Now, remember that phrase. In the uncircumcision of your flesh, what is that? That's a calloused heart. Hath he, God, quickened together, which means made alive, with him, having forgive you, forgiven you, what? All your trespasses. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. And that word ordinances is actually the Greek word dogma which means legal decrees, that was against us, that was the law. And when it says it was against us, it's speaking about in, in an accusatory way, which was contrary to us, it was opposed to us. And it took God, in his great mercy, took it out of our way. He nailed it to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that phrase there, took it out of the way, indicates that a barrier between the sinner and God has been removed. That's what happened when divine forgiveness takes place. It's the removal of sins as a barrier between the sinner and God. And it's a wonderful thing. Psalm 103.11 says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he moved removed our transgressions from us. You probably know that there is a North Pole and a South Pole, right? But there are no East and West Poles. God was very specific in his language here. In other words, there are no points, fixed points on the globe that say this is East and this is West, which means that East and West is infinite. It's an infinite direction. And that's how far God hath removed our transgressions from us in Christ. Isaiah 44, 22, I love this verse. I have blotted out. How many of you have ever gone out, and we've all gone out, and we've seen just a thick layer of clouds, and sometimes those clouds are very dark. 
And, and sometimes here, right, there's Cow's Mountains, and if they come, the clouds come down low enough, you can't even see Cow's Mountain. There's a thick layer of clouds. And God says, I have blotted out, in Isaiah 44:22, as a thick cloud, thy transgressions, and as a cloud, thy sins. In other words, I, I, don't, I can't see them anymore. I can't see them. He's cast them. Behind his back, the Bible says, he's buried them in the depths of the sea. It's wonderful. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. So I want to put two definitions up here, a little bit more expanded definitions than the one that I gave in that first message. Divine forgiveness, if we have that. Divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is the gracious act I think you have that on your notes, don't you? Of a holy and just God, by which he removes from the sinner the guilt and the legal liabilities of his sin, thereby clearing away for a restored relationship between himself and the sinner. Now, restored relationship, we call that reconciliation. When God forgives a person, that person is reconciled to God. Now, the next definition is human forgiveness because we're going to be talking more and more about that as we go along in the study. So here it is. Human forgiveness is a gracious, God-like, modeling Christ, act of one forgiven sinner to another forgiven sinner by which the offended party makes a commitment of his will not to remember the sin of the offending party thereby clearing the way for a restored relationship between both parties. If you say you have forgiven someone and yet you're constantly bringing up a past sin, you can't have a, a very good relationship with that individual. So that relationship has to be, re, 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 that barrier between you has to be removed, completely forgiven. And we'll get more into that. And I'll also mention that even though a sinner can seek reconciliation from another person, there's still sometimes consequences for those sins, right? God doesn't remove all the consequences of our sins. But this is a wonderful truth. Well, what's the condition for obtaining forgiveness from God? We mentioned that. It's a repentant faith or repentance and faith. Let me just, let me just sort of rattle off a couple of verses for you. So, don't, don't get lost. Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, the message that pre- P- Peter preached there, they were pricked in their heart. You see the conscience. God is working through the word on the conscience. They were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and the rest of his apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What, what shall we do? They're disturbed. They're spiritually disturbed. They want to know what, what must we do to have peace. And Peter said unto them, Repent. Repent and be baptized. Now, baptism there in that context is referring to a confessional act of faith. It's not the water baptism act, the water that cleanses, but it's the confession of faith. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for, and actually epi-Greek preposition, upon the remission of your sins. So when your sins have been forgiven, you are baptized, and that's a confessional act of faith demonstrating that you have been cleansed by your sins. You're, you're dead, buried with Christ, you're risen again, you're a new creation. And then he says you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 3.19, early parts of the book of Acts puts an emphasis on repentance. Later on, mid parts and later on puts the emphasis on faith. Faith and repentance are both required. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Think of Isaiah 44.22, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 10.43, to, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him, this is Jesus, will have what? Remission of sins. Acts 10.43, Acts 13.38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that's Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Salvation is what? For by grace are you saved through faith and not not yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of what? Works that we shall do. That any works that we can do. It's all by the mercy of God, not by works. Not by the works of the law. And then Acts 20, 21 puts those two ideas of repentance and faith together. And it says, testifying both to the Jews and the, to the Greeks. This is what Paul said. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that was all in the first message. The second message in the series focused on what we call therapeutic forgiveness. And we asked the question, is therapeutic forgiveness biblical? And the answer is no. And I put up a chart there. On one side, it had a column of listing therapeutic forgiveness, and on the other, it had biblical forgiveness. I could have put it up this morning. I should again, but I, I didn't. So, but here's the, some of the differences. Therapeutic forgiveness is a feeling. It, it, is, it is ceasing to feel resentment or bitterness. So you're going to make a commitment to yourself that I'm, I'm, no matter what this person does, even if they seek forgiveness or nothing, I'm not going to feel resentment and bitterness toward them anymore. It's all feeling-based. Biblical forgiveness, on the other hand, is a commitment to pardon the sinner. You, you want to see him forgiven, biblically. Therapeutic forgiveness is private or individual. It's self-therapy. It's about me feeling good and not bitter, not really about the other person, because they may not even care about you know, your forgiveness. They may not even ask for your forgiveness, which oftentimes they don't. On the other hand, biblical for- forgiveness, as we saw by those definitions, is something that happens between two parties, both parties are involved in biblical forgiveness. Therapeutic forgiveness is unconditional. Uh, oh, I, I for, I've forgiven him. Maybe he committed a horrible sin, but you don't want to carry the bitterness in your heart, so you, so you make the self-therapeutic affirmation, I, I've forgiven him. And you may feel good about it. It does absolutely nothing for him. It doesn't change anything at all with him. So it is uh, motivated primarily, primarily by self-interest. Biblical forgiveness, on the other hand, is motivated by love for neighbor and love for God. It's for God's, God's glory, really. And it is also for our joy. Because when a, renewed, when a relationship that has been broken is, re, be, is restored to us, great joy. We'll see that in the parable this morning. In therapeutic forgiveness, the standard of justice is not critical. It's not about justice, really. It's about how you feel. You can forgive someone who hasn't done any, or who who has not done uh, anything wrong because you you feel you've been wrong. Maybe they didn't even offend you. Some people go so far as to to say, "Well, you know, you need to forgive yourself of what? 
then you, some go for even further and say, uh, you, maybe you need, everything all starts by forgiving God. Because, you know, you might be feeling bit, bitter against God. Biblical forgiveness is different. You cannot legitimately forgive someone if they have not done anything wrong according to God's standards. So you have to determine that. Therapeutic forgiveness can happen apart from reconciliation. The offended parties, could, one could still just go their way. You may feel good about yourself, but there's no reconciliation. On the other hand, biblical forgiveness is inextricably linked to reconciliation. There always will be reconciliation. And of course, a desire for the renewal of, of uh, fellowship with that person. All right, that was all in the message one and two. If you didn't get it, go back and listen, right? This message is uh, on a parable of forgiveness. And it's about the prodigal son. And it is just one of the most beloved of all the parables. I'm sure everybody in, in many different cultures have heard this parable that Jesus told. On Wednesday, last Wednesday, August 2nd, Vince Scully died at the age of 94. Now, many of you may not know Vin Scully. How many of you don't know Vin Scully? Now, you're going to know about Vin Scully today. He was the voice of Dodger baseball. Now, get this. For 67 years behind the microphone. He started when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn and then followed them to L.A. Vin Scully, in my opinion, was the greatest baseball announcer of all time. There probably will never be another one by Vince, like Vin Scully. And you know what made him so great? Was his great storytelling ability. Magic Johnson said he had a voice, and he had a way of storytelling that made you think he was talking only to you. So he brought you right into the broadcaster's booth with him, and he was telling you stories amidst the game of baseball. He was known for, they said, meandering into stories that were at least or more interesting than the action on the field. Because as you all know, baseball can be quite boring. Well, Vince Scully took away that lot of that boringness about baseball. Someone said, if, if Vince Scully read a grocery list, he'd make it sound interesting. That's a good storyteller, right? Reminds me of a pastor that I know. I mean, he could make an illustration out of a burrito. So he was a great storyteller. When the great American storyteller, Mark Twain, was asked, who do you think is the best storyteller who ever lived? Twain answered, Jesus Christ. Then which is the greatest story that Jesus ever told? Do you know Jesus told about 45 parables? Did you realize that? 45 stories, some, some in quite, uh, quite length. Did you know that one-third of Jesus' teaching is in the form of parables? A third of his teaching. And the prodigal son is one that many of you know. Perhaps it rings a bell because you've had a prodigal in, in your own life. What many don't know is that the prodigal, the word prodigal, does not mean rebellious, or wayward, right? 
I mean, we, we've taken that definition on, that that's what comes to our mind, a wayward and rebellious son. But that's not actually what the word means. The word means, prodigal means, outlandish, extravagant, to the point of recklessly wasteful. So if you are spending money foolishly on things that you don't need, you are a prodigal, right? Maybe a prodigal son, maybe a prodigal daughter. We need to understand the background of the prodigal son in Luke 15 to really appreciate everything that takes place there. It's a, it is a tremendous story. And it begins, actually, if you turn to Luke chapter 15, it begins with a, a statement of contempt by the Pharisees and the scribes toward Jesus. No surprise there. Luke 15, 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners. Publicans are tax collectors. Romans hated them. They were Jews, but you know, Romans said, Look, here's the amount you need to collect. Anything above that is your own. And they just raised the, the taxes for the people. But the, the, then drew near unto him all publicans and sinners to hear him. They flocked literally to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners. Now, now get the next part. That's bad enough. And eats with them. In, in, in Eastern culture, to sit down and to eat with somebody was much more significant. To welcome them into your house or for them to welcome you into their house, was, this was, was very special. For Jesus to do this, he was going against the cultural norm. These people, those publicans and sinners, they weren't to be welcomed. They were to be shamed. And the Pharisees were good at shaming people, and not always for what we think for the wrong reasons. I mean, yes, they were filled with pride and self-righteousness, but they did have a zeal for God, and these people were outcasts, didn't care for the law of God, and you, you treat those people like that with shame. You don't welcome them. Who is this, Who is this man that is, that is receiving them and then going into their houses and eating with them? Shame on him. He should be shamed. Eight times in the Gospels, Jesus was targeted by the Pharisees and others who were not happy with him meeting with people that they considered sinners. And yet we know from the Gospels that Jesus targeted sinners. (laughs) The ones they wanted to stay away from, he went after. Luke 5.32, I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. And you all familiar with the story of the wee little Zacchaeus, remember? Jesus is coming into Jericho and he climbs up into a sycamore tree because he had to get above the people to see, see this Jesus that he had heard so much about. And it says in Luke 19, like 19, 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. And he said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must abide at your house. What? What? How shameful of Jesus to do such a thing. And he made haste and he came down and and received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. They were offended, more contempt toward Jesus, because now he had gone into the house of Zacchaeus. Jesus responds to the hard-hearted critics, beginning in verse 3, with three parables. Three parables. First one is a lost sheep, one of a hundred. Tells you something about the heart of God. Luke 15, 4, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is, and I emphasize the word, lost, until he finds it. The second one is a lost coin, one of ten. Luke 15, 9, And when she hath found it, the woman who lost the coin, we'll get, talk maybe a little bit more about that next week, she called her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. So something was lost, right? Something was found and there was rejoicing. And then the third parable in Luke 19 is about a lost son. Not one of a hundred, not one of ten, one of two, one of two. And this one goes into great detail. It's the grand finale of the triology of parables in this chapter. Luke 15, 24, For this my son was necros. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then they began to be merry. If you noticed, I hope you were paying attention, each of the parables that Jesus told here follows a very simple storyline. Something is lost, something is found, and there is great rejoicing when it is found in all three stories. The parallelism between the three of them should be obvious. These parables focus really on the things that are lost, And the rejoicing. Now let me say this. It is not about a Christian who loses his salvation and repents and gets it back. Nor do I believe it is about a backslidden believer repenting and turning his life around. John Martin in his commentary says, In no way could the first two groups be adequately represented in the third parable if the point of the parable is a restoration to fellowship by a believer. No, something was lost, and it's found. It's about a lost sinner finding salvation. This parable is about the gospel. And next week I'll let you know exactly at what point I think the gospel comes into this parable. And it's pretty dramatic. Nobody can be saved without recognizing the fact that he or she is lost. They have to recognize that they're lost first. So parables are they're beautiful things. They're also tricky things. Sometimes we can weave our theology into parables when it should be left out. Uh, we can make too much of the elements of the parables. We'll talk about that. So I, I put down here for you Mark Bailey's Guidelines for Interpreting Parables. There's a lot of good books on parables. But he makes point number one. 
Discover the problem that made the parable necessary. All right? That's the, the cultural setting. What, what triggered this story that Jesus was telling? And in this instance, it was what? The Pharisees' criticism of his concern for those they deemed despicable sinners. That's very, very important that you understand that. Secondly, seek the central truth of the parable. Don't, don't get lost in all the details, although the details can be very informing, informative at times. So someone said a parable might be likened to a wheel. The central point is the hub. And all the spokes point to the hub. If the hub is off-center, the wheel will not perform and function properly. So the hub is the central truth of the parable. That's what you're after. Don't lose sight of the central truth of the parable. Then number three, relate the details to the central truth. So the difficulty and the consequent diversity of interpretation concerning parables are the result, for the most part, of mistaken attempts to make the details of the parables mean something definite all the time. They don't all the time. So we must not try to find a spiritual meaning for every detail in, in every parable. You, could, you can get lost in that and miss the whole central point of the, paragraph, or the parable, what Jesus was really trying to get across. So clarify always as you're going through, working through parables, and authenticate the central truth. Make sure you don't lose sight of it. You know what it is. And then number five, discover the intended appeal of the parable for proper interpretation. And now just let me say this. Sometimes, like when we come to Scripture, you know, in different sections of Scripture, our first thought may be wrong, right? Have you ever found that out? You read a Scripture, it sounds like, well, that's what this means. But then after you further study, I'm not so sure about that anymore. Sometimes our first or, or established thoughts are wrong. The things we believe about a scripture, and by the way, there is only one correct interpretation of a scripture. It's not mine, it's not yours, it's not commentator John, it's what God intended. That's the correct interpretation. And we've got we've to try to find out what that is. But sometimes the things we believe about a scripture or the things we believe about a parable may be wrong. So you have to be very careful. Just because you heard something repeatedly doesn't necessarily make it right. The meaning of the word prodigal, for instance, does not mean rebellious or wayward. It means extravagant, outlandish, somebody who would spend money foolishly. Did you know that there are actually many articles in one book that, that title this parable, the parable, not of the, the lost son or the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal father because of what he does at the end, which is outlandish in putting a, a ring on the son who had rebelled against him's hand. That ring was his ring that was his signet ring by which he transacted family business. This man wasted a third of the family's money. And here's the outlandish prodigal father putting his ring on that man's finger and putting his best robe on that prodigal. Whose robe? His robe. 
Can you imagine what the people thought? What is he doing? We'll talk about that next week. So the meaning of the word prodigal. The lost son, the prodigal son, ending up in a pig pen, sloshing around with pigs and eating their food. I heard sermons on that. The only problem is it doesn't say that in the story. It's not in the text. But it makes for great preaching. The central truth Jesus was addressing in the parable of the prodigal son was that he delighted in seeing sinners repent and be saved. That's a cause for rejoicing. Because the scripture says in Luke 7.33, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and they said he had a devil. You know, you just can't please some people. Right? Here's John. Came. It says that he, he didn't come eating and drinking. Well, John did eat, didn't he? What did he eat? Honey and what? Bugs, right? No. Probably not. Locusts. That's a literal translation. But most commentators in the historical context will tell you that the locust was probably a carob pod which would look like locusts. So he may not have eaten the actual bugs. He may have eaten carob pods. And the hogs in this story, the swine, who weren't in a pen, but were in a field, and they were rooting for what? Probably feeding off of carob pods. Well, that's for later, right? So we need to just be careful about everything. Maybe it was locusts. It doesn't appeal to me, you know, but put a little honey on them, right? <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> so John came neither eating bread or drinking wine, and they said he's, he's demon-possessed. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And they said, Behold, the gluttonous man in a wine-bibber. Like I said, you can't please people. Behold, right? A gluttonous man in a wine-bibber. A friend of publicans and sinners. Wow. He ate with them. He went into their homes. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's Luke 19.10. The Pharisees just, they couldn't stand the fact that he went into the home of Zacchaeus. That's who that's talking about. A tax collector. But he came to save people like Zacchaeus. Doesn't matter how far, how far you are from God, my friend. Or Jesus came to seek and to save you. The prodigal son went off into a far country. Far from God a person can be. But God is eager. God is willing to save him. The prodigal's father didn't wait for the son to come all the way back and then into the house 
And then into the study, sit down with the father. The father ran off to meet him. And all the townspeople were probably saying, what is he doing? Shame on him. You don't reward a rebellious son in in a shame culture. You punish them. And they deserve it. What a picture of the heart of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm going to read you another story. Luke 5, 27, And after these things he went forth and he saw a publican, oh, another despised publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, collecting money. And you know what he said to him? Follow me. And this is mind-boggling. He left everything, rose up, and followed him. Why? Because never a man spoke like this. Who would just get up and leave everything they're doing to follow this person unless there was something dramatic about that person? About the way he looked in the, you in the eye, about the authority he had in his voice when he said unto you, follow me. And you just drop your nets and you leave your boats and you follow him. And you know what it says? He left up and rose and followed him in Luke 5, 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. Now, that's bad. You know what? You know what gets, it gets worse. And there was a great company of publicans and others. Others who? Sinners? That sat down with him. This wasn't a one-on-one luncheon. This was, this was a house full of wretches. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus said unto them, They that are whole don't need a physician, but they who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Boy, (laughs) how do you feel about some people that you don't even want to get near? Do you care enough to give them the gospel? You know, I was blessed by... Richard McGargle told me yesterday the group that went to Balboa Park yesterday and... uh, couple people joined them and just the the opportunities of people coming by and and wanting to talk about spiritual things i encourage you go with them sometimes i i'm i pray them all the time listen god is doing something there god and you know what it's exciting to be part of that why don't you do it sometime you know they that are holy, not a physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32, we have the verse. Listen, the Pharisees thought they were righteous, right? But they were blind and lost. The prodigal son saw his true spiritual condition and was saved. He was saved. Luke 15.32, 
Here's what the father says. It was necessary that we should make merry. Remember, the son comes back. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to fill in the blanks next week, so I'm not going to to let out too much this morning, right? But the father welcomes him back. The, The elder son is angry, you know, because of this gracious treatment that this younger, wayward son is getting, this, re- this rebel, and he lodges his complaint against the Father for doing this. And Jesus says, the text says in Luke fifteen thirty two, the Father speaking, it was necessary that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead dead and is alive again was lost and is found listen that should have driven home the application of this parable to the heart of the Pharisees because they were like the elder brother what are you what are you doing this for him he, he's, he's he turned against you he's a sinner he's it's no good. And I've, I've served you faithfully. When in reality, Jesus is really saying to them is that they should have been rejoicing over sinners who were coming to him and were saved because that was his divine mission. So he's driving the, the central truth of the parable home to them. But like the elder son in the parable, they were envious and they were angry. They were very angry. Now, and just conclude with this. You've heard this before, but I'll do it quickly. Jesus told parables to conceal truth from those whose hearts had rejected it. Parables do two things. They reveal truth to those who have ears to hear and they conceal truth from people who have plugged their ears to the truth. Moulton says, The unreceptive and unworthy multitude stood self-condemned because of the rejection of the message of salvation. They had condemned themselves there. Teaching in parables is part of their just punishment and serves also to keep the door open for those who may become receptive. So here's the text. I'll read this and then put one verse up and we're almost done. Matthew 13.10, The disciples came to Sam to them and he said why, why are you speaking in parables you know why don't you just tell us clearly and he answered said because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to those the Pharisees and all of those people it's not given why because God didn't like them no for whoever hath to whom will be given and he that hath will have even more in abundance but whoever doesn't have from him will be taken away that which he did have Therefore, speak I to them in parables, because they, notice, seeing not, because they seeing, see not. And they, they had seen all the miracles, right? All the things that Jesus had done. But they really didn't see the significance of it all. And hearing, no man ever spoke like him, they heard, but they didn't hear. They didn't hear with their hearts. Seeing they see not, hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. What is this describing? Willful, persistent rejection of truth. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. By hearing you will hear, 
and not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, and then Matthew 13, 15. Why? Why? This judicial hardening. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest that any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be converted, and I would heal them. I am willing, they are not willing. Listen, that's an indictment against the hard-hearted Pharisees. But I want to say this to you. They were not born in that condition. Born with the sin nature, yes. Born going astray, yes. But they became this way over the course of time. The hardening heart, the plugging of the ears, the refusal to see. And I say all that to say this, there is a grave spiritual danger in rejecting the truth. But the good news is that God is compassionate. God is merciful. And God forgives sinners who turn to him. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Don't you love that? Abundantly pardon. The father of the prodigal son pictures the abundant pardon that God is willing and eager to grant And as I said earlier, next week, because I believe the parable of the prodigal son is all about the gospel, next week I'll I'll bring in the moment where I think the gospel just really comes into that parable and begins to shine. And uh, so I hope you come back, and then we'll return to Romans.